0: As we continue to make our way through Matthew's Gospel, as we've been over the course of these past several weeks in particular through our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, as it's recorded by Matthew here in the Gospel that bears his name in our Bibles, I invite you back to Matthew chapter 5 to pick up this morning where we left off last week at verse 38. The title of the sermon this morning is, as you see in the bulletin, Christian Righteousness, Part 5. Now, it may bear that bland title because as I age, my ability to come up with clever sermon titles is on the wane. Uh, But there are two practical purposes embedded in this vanilla title. One is to distinguish the kind of righteousness that Jesus is describing to us here. We'll be reminded in our reading uh, this morning, in a moment, that Jesus demands our righteousness, that the righteousness of Christians, or Christian righteousness as we've called it, must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, the religious leaders well-known and esteemed in the church in Jesus' day. In fact, he says, our righteousness simply must exceed theirs, if we hope to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a striking thing for Jesus to say, to put it mildly. Common Jews of his day would have thought it an outrageous thing to say. The Pharisees were known to a proverb for their scrupulous attention to detail when it came to the law down to tithing on little sprigs of cumin and dill. They counted their steps on the Sabbath day. They had rules about how many knots could be tied. They prayed impressive prayers and were zealous for religious ritual to the detail. How could anyone dream of surpassing the righteousness of such as theirs? But now comes Jesus. And he says to us that if we would ever enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must surpass theirs. It's a shocking thing and unsettling to say and to hear. But then Jesus launches into this, a six-point deconstruction of the pharisaical righteousness. This righteousness of the Pharisees, demonstrating that as a matter of fact, though, they have made themselves to appear righteous only been by distorting God's law that they've been able to convince themselves and others that they were law keepers. As a matter of fact, they were all the while law breakers. I say Jesus gives us six comparisons. We have been more technically and properly calling them antitheses. Six examples, I say, comparisons how the Pharisees had distorted God's law, each of these six paired with a true exposition of the real, the the high, the searching, the noble, the the full-orbed, heart-driven, genuine obedience that God's law requires of us. This, Jesus says, is the righteousness that is required of, of you and of me as Christians if we will be true Followers of his, and no uh, fakers or charlatans. Today we come to the fifth of those six examples; hence the title, of Christian Righteousness, Part Five. Now, in the examples that—just uh, another word of introduction—in the examples Jesus has given us so far, we've seen how the Pharisees have lowered the demands of the law to make it less demanding, or widen the permissions to make them more permissive. We've also noticed, even as recently as last week, that they distorted the law by a subtle shift of emphasis. Same words, different emphasis. Well, today, as we shall see, they resort to another uh, way, and that is turning a restriction into a permission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and we pray that you will speak to us in it, that more and more we may be shaped into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. That's our desire, and it's our desire because you have saved us for just that reason, And because we desire that you should get all glory, honor, and praise in our lives. Holy Spirit, speak. Your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. Our text doesn't actually begin until verse 38. But for context, let's start reading at verse 17. Read verses 17 through 20 and then we'll drop down to verse 38. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think, this is Jesus speaking now. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, Now down to verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. If you're a fan like our family is, our members of the classic half-hour annual must-see Christmas show, A Charlie Brown Christmas, then those words are very familiar to you. They are the no-nonsense, matter-of-fact words of Charlie Brown's little sister, Sally, who has just been communicating in a letter to Santa the presence to which she believes she's entitled, with special notations concerning size and color and, oh yes, Santa uh, send as many of them each as possible. And in case the list seems too complicated, Sally graciously offers Santa a simple and easy alternative. Just send money. How oh, about tens and twenties? Well, when big brother Charlie Brown, who's been acting as her, Eman expresses his displeasure, she is shocked She's being entirely reasonable, of course. She only wants her rights. And in this, she's very American, isn't she? We know about our rights, don't we? Why we have an entire bill of them. Actually, what she's being, what Sally's being is very human. We know, we are certain, we know that we have rights we know what we have coming to us we know what is our fair share Well, the Pharisees knew their rights if someone had slighted one of them in some way had insulted or taken something from them had impugned uh, or uh, impinged rather upon their lifestyle they knew the law and they could quote the law and they did readily, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And as with most of these examples that Jesus gives, they can point to the Bible to prove it. Like the Charlie Daniels band, uh, they said, the good book says it, so I know it's the truth, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. What they were quoting is called the lex talionis, which is a Latin phrase meaning the law of retaliation, the law of retribution in kind. And it does appear in the Bible, as a matter of fact. Back in Leviticus 24, we read this. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The principle of this rule of the lex talionis is that the punishment must fit the crime. In the book of Exodus, chapter 21, the neighbor in view is a pregnant woman. She's hit by uh, one man or the other or both, I suppose, while fighting amongst themselves. If there is a serious injury, they are to take, the scripture says, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, eye, uh, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. A similar law is found in Deuteronomy 19 as well. Today, that principle may sound, as I've just read it, sound very harsh to our ears, maybe even very severe. And maybe that's so because we imagine as we read that text a literal gouging out of an eye for the offender for destroying someone else's sight, maybe in a fist fight. However, in the ancient world, that principle was actually for the purpose of limiting the scope of the punishment. No punishment could be imposed that was not fair compensation for the actual crime committed. Speaking of which, the compensation, uh, I put in quotation marks, was not literally one eye for another eye. No one in those days would have taken this rule literally or thought that it even should be. It is a figure of speech. It's meant to communicate the principle that punishment, the punishment must be equally balanced with the crime. It must fit the crime. Another glance back to Exodus 21 will help us to understand that point. There we read, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, he shall set the slave free because of his tooth. So it was not as though this law required an actual injury identical to the one that was caused. The perpetrator did not lose a physical eye or tooth. Rather, the manumission of the slave was the punishment fitting the master's crime. As I say again, the purpose of the law was to limit the punishment. And this was so necessary because, in part, uh, tribal societies then, as they are still today, uh, burn with a desire for revenge. And, was, uh, and it was a perpetual problem uh, that they pursued this revenge. And the Lex Talionis severely limited that, contained it by making the punishment always be within the scope of the crime. And in fact, thus ruled out revenge. Now, none of this background that I've just given you bothered the Pharisees over much. All they wanted when they were slighted was their rights, which to their minds included a right to revenge. And so they warped the law. And they looked at it very differently. And they took a law that was meant to prevent revenge and turned it into a permission, yes, even a prescription for revenge. In other words, they actually turned the law of God exactly on its head upside down and backwards. The good book says it So we know it's the truth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. All they want is what they've got coming to them. All they want is their fair share. All they want is their rights. And in this way, they are certain they are fully righteous. Now Jesus says to his disciples, he says to us, if we would be his followers, we must surrender our supposed rights. We must abandon our sense of entitlement, even our entitlement to what we might consider to be our personal rights. Is that not, after all, exactly what Jesus did when he came to the earth to save us? He gave up what was fully rightfully his his rights though he was in the form of God Paul writes he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very form of a servant being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And now he turns to us, he turns to you and me, and he says, If you would be my followers, you have to do the very same thing. You must surrender. Your rights, what you consider to be your rights. You must deny yourself. You must take up the cross, Jesus says, and follow him. To enter the king's kingdom, you have to live by the king's terms. No two ways around it. And the king's terms are very simple. Follow me by doing as I have done. Imitate me and give up your rights. Take up your cross and follow me. Now what does that look like? Well, King Jesus, being the wonderful teacher that he is, helps us to understand the life to which he's calling us by supplying us four examples, four illustrations of a life that that enters the kingdom of God, what the life of Christian righteousness looks like. It's a sampling. That's all he's giving us here a sampling. It's certainly not a comprehensive list or exhaustive, just a sampling of the life to which he's calling us. First, we surrender our right to retaliation. Our right to retaliation must be surrendered let me ask you think about this what is your first most natural most basic instinct when you've been wronged when someone has hurt you in some way insulted you embarrassed you uh, taken from you in whatever way stolen from you what is our first instinct of course it's 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 to get them back it's to retaliate in some way to get your pound of flesh in return We justify this all the time in terms of uh, like this evening the score or, or giving the other man what he deserves. Instead, Jesus says this. Listen, it's radical. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, interestingly, the assumption here is that the person who has slapped you has, in the process, insulted you. And it's clear this way. Uh, To slap you, a person will, of course, uh, statistically, statistically speaking, use his right hand. But if he strikes you on your right cheek, how must it happen? With the back of the hand. And just about any culture... Holds this to be true, and it's especially true in Eastern culture, and by the way, to this very day, a backhanded slap is a deep and massive insult. Instinctively, when we're insulted, we believe we have the right, the right to, to retaliate. And Jesus says, No, you don't. Do not take revenge. The Apostle Paul puts it similarly: repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We had always to be mindful of this, of course, but we're especially during these days of the Lenten season mindful of our Savior's suffering for us and, and of the events that immediately preceded our Lord's death for us. So maybe you're wondering to yourself right now, you're, you're thinking through those events, and you're wondering, did Jesus himself live in consistency with this? Because of course, you're thinking about that event, aren't you, when he was struck by the high priest, and he did not and, and, and he re- replies, "If what I said was wrong, this is Jesus now, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you?" Strike me. Is Jesus contradicting himself? Isn't he supposed to be turning the other cheek? Well, there are a couple things that can be said about that. For one, Jesus didn't, you notice, turn around and punch the high priest in the nose. That's part of the answer. The other, fuller part, is that Jesus was, at that time, standing in a court of law. And being tried under the law, he rightly reminds the court and humbly that the Jewish maxims about not striking an accused person must be observed, must be enforced. The Bible is nothing if it is not a book that values law and authority. That, by the way, I might toss in as one of the reasons why we're meeting in this fashion. In obedience to the Lord, we are obeying his authority to not not to gather in uh, groups more than ten. But I say the Bible is a book of authority and recognizes authority, authority in the state, authority in the church. The Bible and Jesus are not saying anywhere that Christians must forego the protections that the law affords them in the church or in the state. On the contrary, we're to be thankful for these protections. We must pray for the authorities, even as we've done this morning. What Jesus is saying is that we must relinquish the right to retaliate in any way for the wrongs that have been committed against us. For this, we have Jesus' example too. We have Jesus' example to follow, and it was told about long before Jesus was even born. 700 years before Jesus was born. In the book of Isaiah, we learn that Jesus would give His back to those who struck Him. He would give His cheeks to those who pulled out His beard. He did not hide His face from disgrace and from spitting. The events we remember during this Lenten season especially first the Jewish police remember spat on him struck him in the face blindfolded and then the Roman soldiers uh, followed suit crowning him with thorns clothing him with imperial purple investing him with a a scepter of reed, jeering at Him, Hail, King of the Jews! Kneeling before Him in their mock homage, spitting, join their spittle with the Jewish police on His face and striking them with their hands. And all this while, what did Jesus do? He took it. He took it all. And he held his peace. He refused to retaliate and allowed them cruelly to continue until they had poured out all of their hatred and all of their vitriol and all of their abuse on him. The Apostle Paul, Peter, rather summarized it this way He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Isn't that exactly what we just said and what we committed to in the reading of God's law? That our lives should be His completely in righteousness and in obedience that He shall have us all. This is the standard to which you and I are called, dear flock, and by which we must live if we we would enter the kingdom of heaven. Not grasping our rights to revenge and redress, but rather resignation, to insult, to injury in the confidence of the vindication of our Father who judges us justly and judges all men justly. What a life to which we are called. Now as I say there follow after this example three more illustrations and I suppose you could consider those parallel to this one about turning the other cheek. So a list of four different rights in that case that Christians do not claim or grasp for themselves. I've also seen the passage treated as uh, three more illustrations of the same principle on retaliation. If it's the former, if the case is the former and those commentaries are right, in that case, and what we have here are four different specific rights that we surrender when we follow Jesus. A sampling of them, I say, namely the right to retaliation. Just consider that one. The right to things. The things we think belong ultimately to us that in fact do not but belong to the Lord. The right to our time and the right to our money now if it's the latter case then Jesus is simply giving us four more ways that we must refrain from retaliation none of them is difficult to understand I'll let you make the decision I suppose which of those is true none of this is particularly mysterious we can glance at them very quickly in verse 40 the Christian is suffering the unjust requisition of his tunic That's. That's tragic in a culture in which a person who's doing well for himself actually owns two. But not only is he to give up his tunic, but Jesus says if they take your tunic away, give them your cloak. Now the cloak was one's coat in the daytime, and in all likelihood in that culture, one's cover by night. Jesus says quite the opposite of standing on your rights, and it was a right to get that cloak back by evening, by nightfall, rather than standing on your rights, let the person take the cloak too. Take my tunic, take my cloak. Same when you're conscripted as a Jew. As a Jew might find himself by a Roman soldier to carry some baggage for a mile. Jesus gives us that example too. We remember someone who had to do that. Remember him? Who had to carry by force something for the Romans? Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross by force of the Romans, a Christian not only obliges, not only obliges cheerfully, he goes on, as we say, to go the extra mile, and happily so. That's Jesus' point. They make you go one mile, go cheerfully with them another. And the last hardly needs any explanation at all. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, in every one of those cases, Christians following hard after their Savior not only relinquish their rights to suffer loss, they go beyond the call. That's the point. We go beyond the call to show that we serve a master who has shown himself to us to be such a master who serves, a master who sacrifices greatly and willingly and happily and without any regard to himself, without any regard to his rights, and that great and terrible. saying what a remarkable life to which we are called, dear flock. This is the true and real and genuine and only Christian life. It is a noble life, it is a beautiful life, and it is a devastatingly costly and sacrificial life. Never, ever do the words... All I want is what I've got coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Cross the lips of one who is genuinely following Christ. We've surrendered our rights long ago to follow Him in order to take a hold of something, or rather I should say someone so much more wonderful, more satisfying to our souls, more filling, more blessed, the only life that is worthy to be called life, the life we have in Christ. For now, my brothers and sisters, though it leads to an end of glory, the likes of which stagger our imagination, for now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German martyr, put it this way, he called the Christian life our visible participation in His cross Spurgeon Charles Spurgeon used a different arresting phrase to describe what this life is that we're called to he says we are to be as the anvil when bad men are the hammers that's the way of the cross This is the way of the cross and it therefore must be. It's the only way of Christian righteousness. Returning good for evil to the point of giving even our bodies, our clothing, our service, our money. The only limit to our generosity being the limit imposed by love. Now I could fill the rest of the morning with living examples of such noble lives from Scripture. And it is a long list from Scripture and history. But in light of the current events, including and surrounding our current COVID pandemic, one particular saint comes to mind. His name was Martin Rinkert. Martin Rinkert. He was one of those provincial Clergyman to whom Germany had so much reason to be grateful in the 16th and 17th centuries. He was the son of a poor coppersmith. He made his way at the University of uh, Leipzig by dint of industry and his musical gifts. He became a precentor, which uh, is a fancy word for essentially a song leader, a musician in the church at Eisleben. At the age of 31, Rinkert became pastor at his native town of Eilenburg, just as the Thirty Years' War was, had broken out. And as a matter of fact, he died soon after the peace, having served his flock 31 years. During that time, his church and he had plenty of opportunities to live that visible participation in the cross, that uh, Bonheffer talks about. There was the quartering, quartering of soldiers in his house. There was the frequent plunderings of his little stock of grain and household goods, all to be endured willingly and happily after the fashion of Christ. But then the plague, 1637... The plague visited Islandberg with extraordinary severity. The town was overcrowded with fugitives already from country districts where the Swedes had been spreading devastation. And in this one year, 8,000 died there. The whole of the town council, save three, were among the dead. A terrible number of school children, and the clergymen of the neighboring parish, all carried off. And Rekert had to do the work of three men now, and he did it manfully at the beds of the sick and the dying. The pestilence was followed by a famine, a famine so severe that 30 or 40 people could be seen fighting in the streets over a dead cat or crow. Rinkert, with the Burgomeister and another citizen, did what could be done to organize assistance and gave away everything but the barest of rations for his own family so that his door was surrounded by crowds of poor and starving wretches who found it their only refuge. Rinkert personally buried more than 4,000 people, including his own wife and children. After all this suffering, came the Swedes once more. And they imposed on the unhappy town a tribute of $30,000. We'll use that word. Rinkert ventured into the camp to entreat the, the general for mercy, and when it was refused, he turned to the citizens who were with him, who had followed him, saying, Come, my children, we can find no hearing, no mercy with men. Let us take refuge with God. He fell on his knees and prayed with such touching earnestness that the Swedish general relented and lowered his demand to to 2000 florins so great were rinkert's losses and charities that he had uh, only with the utmost difficulty was able to find bread and clothes for his own children and he was forced to mortgage his future income that was rinkert's entire ministry it was the way of the cross Never once did the words cross his lips. All I want is my fair share. All I want is what I have coming to me. Not once. But some words did cross his lips. He wrote them down. And the Christian church has been singing them to this very day. They go like this. Now, thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things has done, in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Christian righteousness, the way of the cross. Amen.